Please open in your New Testament to the book of 1 Timothy. And we're looking at the last few verses in chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now, it seems to me that we as Americans, and we're not alone, are very attracted to mysteries. If you scan through your TV channels, you'll know that there's a lot of mystery shows, whether you're talking about detective shows or mysteries uh, that just go unsolved, things that happen in the woods or in, in the skies, whatever it may be. We tend to be fascinated by mystery. Just a few weeks ago, uh, there was uh, hundreds of people uh, found themselves at uh, Loch Ness looking, of course, for Nellie, the monster, uh, scanning the waters, hoping to find her. Finally, they did not. Um, of course, uh, these days they're looking for UFOs. There's been plenty of sightings, uh, spaceships entering into uh, our atmosphere and making their way across our skies and being sighted. In fact, this week the Pentagon uh, opened up a new website in order for you to report the sightings you may have, you may see. And then there are less sensational mysteries, such as the one which I'm particularly interested in, especially since I'm headed down that, that way, and that's the sickening noises in Havana, Cuba, uh, whereby CIA agents and embassy workers um, are becoming permanently disabled uh, by these ultrasound uh, sounds uh, that are unexplainable. The last time I was in Havana... Uh, the embassy was closed. It was very quiet because of this. And of course, maybe the most famous of all mysteries, there's Bigfoot, otherwise known as the Yeti or Sasquatch. Now, a few years ago, my family and I found ourselves in this little town called Bigfoot, California. And yes, it's named after Bigfoot. And it's named after Bigfoot because it claims to have the greatest number of Bigfoot sightings in all of the world. And we were there. By the way, here in Wantage, we've had at least two sightings of Bigfoot right off 284 on Layton Road. You, you might want to go check it out. We have at home, and every, every winter, I promise I'm going to find it, dig it out, and, and I never do. And the older I get, the less likely it will be. But it's plastic Bigfoot shoes. And one day I'm going to put them on and I'm going to run across people's lawns. <laughs> and of course, at Bigfoot, California, um, they have a museum, Bigfoot Museum. They have a gift shop as well where you can buy magnets and placemats and Christmas ornaments of, of Bigfoot. Now, my sons and I made the grave mistake of questioning the existence of Bigfoot when we were standing there in the gift shop. And we started joking about it. And the, 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 the park ranger who was manning the gift store heard us. And boy, did we get a scolding. We got an earful. And the four of us just stood there looking at this guy. He was carrying a gun. The patches were impressive. And we just listened. I felt so bad I bought a magnet. <laughs> and we still have it. Later that Sunday, I should say, that we were in church. And as we were in church, we were just sitting around talking to, to people after church. And one fellow actually admitted. He said, all those sightings are my brother-in-law 
who puts on this ghillie, which is a camouflage suit, and he runs through the woods on the weekends. And people say, oh, there's Bigfoot, there's Bigfoot. And of course, this fellow's life is in danger. His brother-in-law is very concerned for him because he's afraid somebody's going to take a pop at him in the woods one of these days. I just found that very interesting. We love our mysteries. But the greatest mystery of all is listed right here in these verses. The greatest mystery that we can ever consider is listed right here. It begins with verse 14 of 1 Timothy chapter 3. Let me read the text to you. Just a few verses. I hope to come to you soon. This is Paul writing, right? He's saying to Timothy, he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That's our text this morning. Pray with me, will you? Our Lord and Savior, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for revealing to us a mystery that the rest of the world longs to understand and does not. But thank you, Lord, for giving to us eyes that may perceive, ears that would hear, hearts that would be endeared to your truth and comprehend this mystery. We pray, Lord, that you would edify us this morning. We ask these things in your name, O Lord. Amen. Amen. I have four points for you. The first one is this, the meaning of our days. And for those of you who like to get ahead of things, my second point is the master of the church followed by the mission of the church and then eventually the message of the church. Let's begin with number one. It's a good place to start, no? Number one, the meaning of our days. We see here, right here in verse 14, the meaning of our days. And, and at first I was just going to skip this. I wasn't going to mention anything. But in all honesty, I couldn't because it's so significant. Every word in the New Testament, in the scriptures, are significant. And here the Apostle Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God. And I realize that we are all very busy people. I, I doubted that there's anybody here who says, I'm not busy. If that's you, I'd like to meet you. I'd like to talk to you later. Most of us would say we are busier than what we anticipated. Even after retirement, most would say, I'm busier than ever. We have schedules. We have deadlines. We have family obligations. We have oil changes and checkups. We have hobbies that we enjoy to do, and we have what many people would consider the daily grind from 9 to 5 that actually starts at 8 and ends at 6. We're busy people. I want you to know that the Apostle Paul was just as busy. The only difference between us and him is that we have technology he did not. In fact, in some cases, he was even busier then. And again, here he writes, I hope to come to you soon. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I am delayed, you'll know how to act in the household of God. Now, the Apostle Paul's intent was to eventually make his way back to what is now Turkey, to the city of Ephesus, and take part in what was happening in that church he helped to establish some years earlier. And, and it probably seemed likely to him that he would get there, 
But Paul was very familiar with the circumstances of life that can often change our plans. How often have our plans changed? My wife and I were hoping to be in Brazil this summer just to visit family. We did not go. Things changed. And I'm sure you have all your accounts of how often life has changed. Well, Paul was very much aware that his plans are not necessarily God's plans. And if you read on to the next book in 2 Timothy, you'll see that indeed he was delayed. He did not get there as he thought he would. And he accepted this as being God's will. Well, obviously I'm not there. It's not that God is out of control. It's God's hand in my life. I'm not there. I'm not going to be there at this point. And we accept that, don't we? we, we the things that we plan uh, at times may be disappointing when they don't happen. Uh, but the Christian way of thinking is saying, God knows, he's in control, I can trust his timing. But let me remind you of something that I think is very important for every Christian to consider as a daily way of thinking. And that's the concept we see in the book of James chapter 4, verse 13. It reads this way. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a place and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet, verse 14, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills, I'm going to Brazil. He did not will it. If the Lord wills, I'll be ministering among pastors, who, by the way, the church there has been ravaged by this great exodus. 50% of the pastors have left and crossed the borders, whether in the States or Spain or wherever they can go, leaving these churches without shepherds. If it's the Lord's will, at the end of October, that's where I'll, I'll be. We need to learn to think in accord with my plans are sure, they're definite in my mind, but first I need to depend on what God wills. Lord, what is your plan for my life? How would you direct me where I should be and what I should do? I place myself under your direction, not mine. Now here Paul writes regarding the essentials, right? Um, he's talking here about matters that need attention, urgent attention, actually. And the point being that, that the church of Jesus Christ was not only at the forefront of this man's mind, but it occupied his days and his hours. And some would say, well, of course, he was an apostle. That's what apostles do. No, no, you got it backwards. The reason he was an apostle was because the church of Christ was at the forefront of his mind, not the other way around. The church of Christ was of utmost importance to him. The household of God was his priority. And of course, I mention this to you because he sets the example for every Christian. The priority of God's house, even in our busy days. My friends, let me remind you of something I think you know already. Christ is the one who gives to us meaning to our days. Christ alone is the one who will 
order our schedule. He is the one who gives purpose to our goals and plans, and he sets them in order. And what you will discover is that when you prioritize Jesus Christ and his household, all these other things tend to come in place. That's point number one, the meaning of our days. They're found in Christ. Secondly, what you'll see here are in the following phrases that I read to you earlier, Paul explains why the church is his priority. Why is the church his priority? He just said it is, but why? Well, take a look at verse 15. There we see that Jesus Christ is the master of the church, that God is the master of the church of the church. Look at what he says, quote, how you ought to behave in a household of God, verse 15. How you ought to behave in a household of God. That is to say, my friends, that the church belongs to God. He is the master of the church. Now, there are three truths that just leap out of the page to me here as I'm reading it. And the first one is this. The Apostle Paul is speaking of the household of God not the house of God. He's not talking about this building. He's not talking about not spilling coffee on the church rug or letting children run through the sanctuary. That's not what he's talking about, although I think my grandmother would disagree. Here he's talking about the household of God, which are the people of God, the children of God. How the household of God should behave. Secondly, it's just that. The household of God are the people of God, the family of God. And so what Paul is doing is giving us them then, but us now, giving to us, his church, instructions on how to live as the people of God. No one else is going to teach you this. It comes out of the scriptures alone. How do you live as the people of God? Well, Paul is delineating that for us. How the church is to conduct herself. How do we live as a church? Now the word church comes from the word Greek word ekklesia, which means called out ones. The idea here being that God called us out of the world and unto himself. We no longer belong in the world that we live. We don't belong to that world anymore. And yet until the day comes, we live there. That's not where we belong. We're called out of the world and unto God, so that now God is the master of the ones he called out. The church is the possession of God. Have you thought of the church in that sense? If so, do so more. (laughs) The church is the possession of God. And Paul here has a sense of urgency because what is at stake here is actually the church of God. And it belongs to God. Now, if you've been reading with me here in 1 Timothy, you look at the standards. And the standards that Paul lays out for the church of God, how to live as the church of God, they're not surprising if you are well-churched, if you've been uh, listening to uh, Bible teaching Uh, over the years. You're not surprising at all. But keep in mind that these standards here are very surprising, for example, to the fledgling church or to the pragmatic church. 
The pragmatic church is the church that says, well, times change, we have to change, change God's word. The pragmatic church is the church that says, the ends justify the means. Now, now keep in mind that all truth is God's truth. No question about it. And God has laid out very clearly here that we are to abide by his standard. Because the church is not yours. The church is not mine. And people often refer to my church. Honestly, it's not my church. I am, at best, the under-shepherd. Answerable to God and answerable to my congregation as well. It's our church, in a sense, because we are here. But really, it is God's church. We are the people of God. Now, that should be comforting to us, but it's also sobering. We belong to God. There's a particular expectation, and thus, we should not neglect the church of God. We should not treat it carelessly. That is to say, that when it comes to the household of God, we want to be timely. We want to be invested. We want to be wise about it. We want to be very watchful. We want to be gentle with the household of God. We want to follow the directions in regards to the household of God. And of course, those directions are found only in the scriptures. Here's a third truth for us to consider still there in verse 15. It is the church of God, but notice here it says it is the church of the living God. The church of the living God. Uh, I find it so interesting how, and rightly so, how, how respectful we are at funeral homes and cemeteries, right? Uh, there's a particular decorum that's expected where we're in either, in either one of those. Uh, we don't run through the cemetery high-fiving and everybody saying, wow, that was a great funeral. Of course not. Well, when you get to the viewing uh, at the funeral home, you don't, you don't scream out, Hey, Joe, long time I haven't seen you. I haven't seen you since the last funeral. Of course you don't do that. And yet, these people are dead. You're there to honor them, but they're dead. They will never know that you're there. It's the right thing to do, especially for the family, but they'll never know that you're there. Notice, my friends, that God is not dead. He is alive. How much more, then, should we handle the household of God properly? With respect, with devotion, with zeal. The household of God. The church belongs to the living God. That's right, the God who watches us. The God who receives our worship. The God who's blessed by his church. You know, we want to be blessed by God, and we have been. But understand this, we as God's people bless him when we worship him. The God that interacts with us, the God that intervenes in our life on behalf of the household of God. And get this, he is the same God who has promised that one day he will return for his household. The church is a priority because it belongs, she belongs, to a living God. 
Richard Sibbs puts it this way. The church of God is a household of God, a company of people, get this, a company of people that God cares for more than all of mankind. Do you feel privileged? You should. The church of God are the people that God cares most for. And he's called you to be a part of his church. Let's take a look at point number three, the mission of the church. Still there, verse 15. We see here the mission of the church. Notice Paul writes in regards to the church, he says, she is, quote, a pillar and buttress of truth. A pillar and buttress of truth. The church alone has been extended the redeeming truth of God. Nobody, nothing else, no other institution in this world has been given God's redemptive plan. The story by which you can escape not only the flames of hell, but better yet, that you can know God and know new life. That through Christ, you can be born again. Only the church has that mystery. Only the church has that truth. It is definitely a privilege. It's also a responsibility. Take care of what God has given to you. Both the pillar as well as the buttress are foundation structures that will support a building. Truth hangs from the church and truth is held up, supported by the church. The mission of the church is to support and uphold truth. If we don't do it, who will? That is the job of the church. That's our mission, to uphold truth. All truth is God's truth. All truth finds its origin in God a God who does not change, whether you're talking about religious truth or scientific truth or ethical truth or philosophical truth, scientific truth, whatever truth it is, it originates in an unchanging God. And so truth is cemented in the unchanging nature of God. And we are to extol that truth. One writer put it this way, he said, each congregation has in its power the ability to support the truth by teaching it and living it. You support the truth. How? By teaching it and living it. You are the pillar and a buttress. We together are the pillar and a buttress of truth. Now we are just one pillar of many around the world. But we are a pillar in a postmodern age, uh, we are told that truth does not exist. We are told that truth does not exist, and if it does, you're never going to find out what it is. It's impossible to determine, which would then render the church rather useless, right? What good is a church who upholds a truth if truth doesn't exist? Well, truth does exist. And as all, we all know, uh, truth can be known. How do I know we all know truth exists? Well, we all look both ways before we cross the street. 
Why? Because truth exists. God's truth is the seed of the church. Everything we are, everything we ought to be, breeds from the truth of God. And the truth that created new life in you is supported by the church of Jesus Christ. That's how important church is. Keep in mind then, if what I'm saying is true, and it is, keep in mind then that every lying word, every cheating eye, every slanderous comment, every raging temper, every greedy heart, every time we do these things, we are chipping away at the bricks of the pillar of truth. That's why it's vital that we live according to the truth of God and that we uphold it, not chip away at it. The church. God indwells his church. God uses his truth to propel his church. Look at what 2 Corinthians 6.16 reads. It says, We are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they will be my people. Who? Church. He's talking about you. The living God. The church has the task of getting people back in touch with God's truth. And then lastly, verse 16. Here we see the message of the church. We saw the master. We saw the mission. Now verse 16, the message of the church. I think there are some rather interesting dynamics here as we consider who God is and who the church is. We have uh, a holy God and a very sinful church. What a contrast. We have a great and majestic, awesome God, powerful God, and we have very common, simple Christians. Uh, we have an eternal God, and we have temporal Christians, people. We have an all-knowing, wise God, and a group of people who are very slow in learning, aren't we? I am. We have a faithful God. Meanwhile, in the church, you have fickle people who vacillate and are erratic in their devotion to the Lord. And yet... God has made us his own. God has made us his own, despite who we are. He didn't say, wow, you are so lovable. You are so cute. I want to make you mine. No. He said, you're completely the opposite of who I am. And I am going to make you mine. And he takes you into himself. And then he begins to transform us into his likeness. Don't slow down that process. Whereas it is the Holy Spirit that transforms you. Look, he will only do so to the extent that you allow him. If you want to be transformed by God, you have to give yourself to God. He may very well twist your arm, but he usually does it. He usually does it. And when he does, you're always sorry he did. At least at the moment. 
Becoming more like Christ is called godliness. Godliness. And Paul here explains the mystery of godliness. He, he presents it by stating uh, what we can all agree is a great mystery. You see that in verse 16? Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Now, when we talk about mystery in the New Testament, it's not the same way we use the word mystery in our common American language. Uh, it's not a mystery like, does Bigfoot really exist? No, when, when the New Testament refers to the word mystery, it's referring to a secret once concealed, but now revealed. Yes, it was at one point concealed. Nobody had any idea what it was. But now, to those who know Christ, it has been revealed. It's no longer a mystery to us. Uh, it would be the equivalent of everyone wondering, does Bigfoot really exist? Meanwhile, you're sitting in the woods dining with him. <laughs> Here is the grandest history mystery. We cannot think of it often enough. Again, Sibs writes, It is the life and soul of the Christian. It is the marrow of the gospel. It is the wonder of wonders. We need not wonder about anything else after this when we consider the mystery of our salvation. All that we believe as God's people boils down to this, to this one truth. God came to us. And why? God came to us. What a mystery. And here's the message. As you look there at the second half of verse 16, you'll notice that it looks like either a creed or an ancient hymn. It's written in poetic form. It's easy to memorize. So we take it that it was probably sung back in the days of the early church. And I'm going to divide it up into six words. Here is the mystery of godliness revealed to us. This is what you need to believe if you want to start in that journey of godliness. Here's the first thing. First word, incarnation. It reads, he was manifested in the flesh. Incarnation. God revealed himself in the flesh. Of course, that's the Christmas story. God, who is spirit, actually became flesh, visible, in order for us to know him and believe in him, in order for him to die for us and resurrect. Incarnation. The second word, resurrection. The resurrection was the vindication was Christ's vindication against all those who mocked him and eventually crucified him. He was justified by the Spirit as being truly the Son of God when he resurrected and he beat death. Death could not hold him down. Resurrection. Number three, witnessed. It says he was seen by angels. Now, truth is, Christ was seen by many people. But here in particular, we're talking about angels. Angels are simply messengers of God. Uh, with every word spoken, every miracle performed, angels were watching. But I think what is specifically being referred to here is the witness of the angels at the empty tomb 
when Jesus Christ resurrected and the angels stood there and said, he is no longer here. The tomb is empty. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12 says that even angels long to look into these things. I find that to be a vast, fascinating verse. You know why? Because it, it conveys uh, the excitement of redemption. Realize that angels cannot be forgiven and redeemed, but you can. And here, angels are fascinated by God's redemptive plan. And the picture we have here in 1 Peter 1 is that the angels are looking over the balcony of heaven and rubbernecking to see what is God doing down there. This is exciting. It's fascinating. Oh, that we would be so fascinated. Number four. Promised. Rather, proclaimed, proclaimed. It says here that he was proclaimed among the nations. Now, the disciples, I think, did a wonderful job taking the gospel to various parts of the known world. Uh, we know of Paul's various missionary trips. Uh, tradi- tradition tells us that Thomas went to India. Uh, Peter went to Antioch. Tradition tells us that his brother Andrew went into Greek communities. And that Matthew went to Africa, in particular Ethiopia, and there he was martyred. The scriptures don't tell us that, but tradition does. Whatever the case, the word got out. The gospel got out around the world today. But I believe that Christ was first proclaimed to the nations when over 500 gathered during the Passover week and witnessed the resurrected Christ. 500 witnesses came together, people from all around the known land, and witnessed the resurrected Christ. And there he was proclaimed to the nations. Word number five, believed. It says he was believed on in the world. People saw with their very own eyes the fulfillment of the promises Christ made. Uh, you'll remember John chapter 2, uh, Jesus Christ is standing at the temple and he says, I will, uh, this will be torn down and I will build it back up in three days. And they laughed at him and said, it took more than four decades to build this temple and you're going to do it in three days. <laughs> what a jerk. But if you read on, you see he was not talking about the building. He was talking about himself. The building was just a picture of Christ. And indeed he did. In three days, he built it back up. He resurrected. And so people believed when they saw the evidence. It's hard not to believe in Christ when you consider the evidence. Consider the evidence. And lastly, number six, he ascended. He was taken up in glory. Acts chapter 1 verse 2 speaks of how Christ was taken up. And now he is seated in his proper place as God over the universe. Ascended. Ascended. And it is from that throne that he will return for his church. And from there he will judge the nations. My friends, what we have here in these six words are the content which begins this journey of godliness. Godliness begins when you place your faith 
in the person and work of Jesus Christ as described here in verse 16. He's not asking you whether or not you're religious. He's asking whether or not you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the mystery of godliness. If this mystery is no longer a mystery to you, a hearty amen. If it's still a mystery to you, I would love to talk to you and help you better understand what it means to know Christ as your Lord and Savior and to experience new life in him. So that the mystery of godliness will no longer be a mystery to you. Now, the scriptures are very clear in 1 Corinthians that this very truth, that what I just talked to you about, for the Gentiles, it is foolishness. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. But to those who believe, it is the power of salvation. It will transform you. And that's why the church exists. The church exists because of this particular truth. And more. Truth that builds on this truth. And thus it becomes a priority. Let me ask you, if for the Jews it's foolishness, if for, rather, if for the Gentiles it's foolishness, for the Jews it's a stumbling block, what is it to you? This, this gospel message, what is it to you? What, what do you do with it? What have you done with it? You need to answer that question. Well, my friends, the meaning of our days is in Christ as it reflects, is reflected in the bride of Christ, the church. The master of the church is the living God, and the mission of the church is to uphold his truth, and the message of the church is the gospel of Christ, which reveals to us the mystery of godliness. I thank the Lord for taking the mystery away. Amen.